All right, all right. We are live for the 48th installment of the Playing to Win podcast series, and I'm joined today with a retired RAF Tornado fighter pilot, Tim Davies. How you doing? Hey, Rich. Good to be here. Living the dream every day. Excellent. So a um, little background. Uh, Tim and I connected on uh, Twitter. Um, I don't recall why I found your feed fascinating, but I did. Uh, that's all that you guys need to know. But um, yeah, I, I've listen, I'm going to tell you some stories about my childhood in a minute and why, why I think that military guys are amazing. First thing before I do that, I always ask you guys to do me a solid. And if you can uh, come over to YouTube and just help me out with the algorithms, I'm going to drop the link and uh, just click that if you're watching it on Twitch or Facebook or Twitter or wherever and uh, join us over there and hit the like button for the YouTube algorithm. So, um, Tim, you, you probably don't know this, but when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time building scale models of uh, Spitfires, Hurricanes, Lancasters, Measuresmiths, all the World War II planes. By the time the Falkland War came along, uh, I watched that unfold in my uh, television screen in my family room. Uh, my dad was in the RAF. He, he wasn't a pilot, though. My grandfather was in the RAF. He, again, wasn't a pilot. He was a uh, ground crew. He worked on the uh, flying boats. My dad was a, a radio tech. Um, but watching the Falkland War unfold, I was, I was thinking to myself at the time, I, that's what I want to do. I want to fly Harrier jump jets. And I was about 18 or 19, I think, when I sent in my application because uh, I qualified because I was born in the UK. So I was technically um, you know, a citizen, although I had a funny accent at the time. But uh, yeah, they, they uh, turned me down because I was too tall. Um, six foot two, you're too big for the uh, um, cabin. And apparently you had to have perfect vision, which um, my vision started to, de started to deteriorate at the time. But um, what, was, what was getting in the military like for you? Like, why did you decide to do that? Father's father, father's father's father, father's father, father being a military. Um, my dad was a Royal Marine. His father's a Welsh Guardsman. Uh, so I was always going to go into something, I think. To be fair, we lived in Portsmouth, a naval town. In the end, I joined the Navy. Um, okay. And I remember when I was very young, your father does have a huge influence on you. They yeah. really do. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to talk about maybe joining the airlines or something. And he wasn't that interested. But as soon as I mentioned the military, he marched me down to the Royal Marines office. And I was doing pull-ups on the door at 11, you know, this kind of stuff. As he was smoking cigarettes with the recruiter going, well, you'll be a good Marine. So from then on, you realize your father's validation probably comes in doing something similar to what he'd done. And... Um, my brother followed me into the services. In fact, I joined the Royal Navy at uh, I uh, post university. I joined the Royal Navy to fly on the Harrier. And uh, as I got towards the end of flying training on this aircraft here, the Hawk T1 at the time, mm -hmm. uh, I later went to instruct on that. Um, the, the Harrier, the Sea Harrier, <clears throat> was decommissioned in the Royal Navy. And so about nine of us were either going to get sent around to start helicopter training, which no one really wanted to do after about four years of learning to fly jets. And the Royal Air Force turned around and said, look, guys, you're already trained. You haven't got a jet to fly. Why don't you come across to the Air Force? And so we all we all did. And I spent about about four about five years in the Navy and about fifteen years in the Air Force after that. So so did you ever get a chance to fly the Sea Harrier? No, I, never, I flew in one. Yeah, I flew with one of the one of the boys down from Yeoverson who, who dragged one up, and we just went flying around and stuff. It's all good fun. Funny, I teach it now. I teach it in uh, in my in my flight sim. But um, no, I never flew the Harrier. No, I um, I went straight onto the big jets. And and the big jets for you was the tornado, which was, um, yes. I guess that was the front line sort of um, jet for yeah. the British Air Force. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about the tornado and why that was such a special plane? Yeah, so the tornado was two marks. There was the 
well, air defense variant in effect and the, the the gr the ground reconnaissance variant. so i flew the gr4 which came after the gr1 very much similar jet but some updated stuff so the gr4 that you can see down here that one there i don't know whether i can move this a little bit and see a better variant of it i suppose there we go at the top there that's a 12 yeah. squadron jet at the top and there's a hawk t2 i struck on the bottom so let's do that then whilst we're talking about the tornado yeah so um this airplane we flew within war situations about 30 years and david cameron whenever something kicked off in the world david cameron would always say you know where are my tornadoes because he knew they were a huge asset and this this aircraft was permanently at war so of course we're always training for something uh whether it was iraq or afghanistan or anything like that and uh, it's been decommissioned now for about a year and a half i think it is but there oh, wasn't air service. There and, what's that oh they're out of service now yeah they're out of service now only just what is, only just what is they uh, replace them with the f-35 or well, in effect, yeah, the F-35 and the, the Typhoon, uh, the, the Typhoon's taking oh, up more of a ground attack role, but okay. it's an air defense platform, and the, the F-35 will will do both. It's, it's not easy doing both roles, to be fair, as as a, a pilot, and I was purely ground attack, initially mm -hmm. low-level night and maritime, and then towards the last bit of my tour, I went uh, pretty much medium-level only, to be fair, or became a bit of a medium-level war, especially out in Iraq. Low-level is treetop, right? Like, is it still... A few hundred feet off the ground? Yeah, it's 250 feet off the ground as a minimum. So really, we'd look to be anywhere between about mm -hmm. 270 to 320. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do operational low flying, especially in wartime. <clears throat> and we bring that down to well, whatever you can get away with. And that's why we lost some tornadoes back in the early 90s in Iraq. Uh, they just flew into the sand because they were flying too low. Um, we had a minimum of 100 feet in training. Uh, mm -hmm. We did that in certain, there's about three areas of the country where you can fly down to 100 feet. But if you are flying at 100 feet, the pilot really is just staring out the front head-up display and the weapons officer in the back is looking out for everything else, birds and other aircraft and stuff. It's a it's a very energy-sapping task. So routinely, you'd be at low level about 250 feet. Yeah. Um, why the tornado? Like, was that the only aircraft that you had the option to select from or...? No, at the time, I had two variants of Tornado because they okay. said, what do you want to do? Uh, I wasn't the most gifted air defense pilot. I find it quite tedious, to be fair, just going around in circles, trying to chase each other. I, I still do, even though I teach it. Mm -hmm. I, I'd rather be teaching the ground attack element rather than the, um, the air defense stuff. Some guys love air defense, sport kings and all that kind of stuff, and I understand why. I like the planning. I like when you plan something, Rich, you, you start with a target. So someone says, this is your target. Okay, this is a... Um, I know an oil refinery, whatever it might be. And then you work it out with a team of guys or girls in this airplane. How are we going to take this? What is it? Is it destroy? Is it harass? Is it damage? They each mean different things. So you really get into, well, how thick is the concrete? What are the fusings we have on paveway guided munitions, whatever it might be? Which ones can we use? How can we get the penetration in through the top? Are we trying to harass this to get a three-day rebuild? Or do we want to destroy it? Because if we destroy it, then we could actually affect the local population. That could have an adverse effect on the campaign we're coming up against because they have no water, for example, and therefore they don't like us anymore. So you might not want to just go and blow stuff up all the time. So for me, that clinical aspect of, of preparing the sortie and really getting into the details of how many aircraft, how many bombs, how are we going to do it, medium, low level? Is it a permissive and non-permissive environment? I do we have air threats out there, ground threats, you know, surface air missile systems. Uh, all that for me was was so much more engaging than let's go and fire missiles against another aircraft. That was it. So that's. But I did have a choice, Rich. I had Jaguars, tornadoes, um, Harrier at the time. Probably wouldn't have got onto that to be fair because it was full and I wasn't as good as I could have been coming out of training. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but back then we had a lot of aircraft. But I, I chose the tornado because that's where the men went. I think you're fine. <laughs> there was um, there was a base in Oakham. I can't remember what it was called or just outside of Oakham. I don't oh, know if you were stationed there, but they but they had but they had tornadoes there, and I visited my. Um, 
I think my aunt and uncle lived there at the time. Oh, yeah. I was small. I was no, I wasn't small. I was, I was I was probably about twenty at the time, twenty or nineteen or twenty. But I remember going out there to visit, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know the tornado base is over there," and we just kind of like drive five minutes from her place, and you could literally throw a stone at the aircraft as they were taxiing <laughs> down the runway, you know, if you wanted to at that time. But um, were you ever stationed there? That was Cotsmoor, wasn't it? The Tri-Tornado Training Establishment, TTTE, with the um, British and the Italians, etc. Yeah, that was Cotsmoor, and that migrated then. So they did train um, three services, German, Italians, and British there. And then what happened is they took up their own individual training after the first tornadoes came in, and they split the tornado bases between uh, Lossiemouth and Marham. And I was a Lossiemouth-based pilot because I asked to go as far away from Portsmouth as possible. And where better can you go is northern Scotland, up there in Venice. You can't get much further away. So I flew there for about four and a bit years on that big jet and then the other base marham down south in in norfolk i never i took a jet there once to deliver it and caught a civvy flight home but for me it's very flat and it's um i mean up where, up where we had we had all the locks around scotland to fly and we had the north sea it was great flying last of the uh, great low level flying to be fair i think that the royal air force has ever had whereas i didn't want to be based in marham but i did go to cotsmore i just never flew out of there can you can you talk about some of the campaigns or is that classified stuff that you can't uh, disclose? No, no, a lot of it's quite tedious, to be fair. War, war can be a little bit, no, war can be a lot boring, to be honest. And then what something was the happened. Most, what was the most interesting thing that, um, you know, happened to you when you were um, in active duty? Inactive, so overseas theater-wise, yeah? Yeah. So we, well, we had this, I used to write essays about this in the service and there's one I wrote uh, about, um, you know, about days being dull, but at least you're not a fighter pilot. I can't remember what it's called now. It's on my website, fastjetperformance.com. And what that was about was a mate of mine, Steve, was in one jet and uh, with his nav. I'm in another jet with my nav. I still speak to Steve now. He's a good lad. And um, we were over the town of uh, Basra in southern Iraq. And we're doing, we, we're, we're tooled up. We've got the bombs. We've got the the the, the um, reconnaissance pod. And we've got um, all the laser designation pod. And we've got the gun, of course, uh, 27 millimeter miles of cannon. And we were over Basra, just looking at the MSRs, main supply routes, looking at uh, pipelines and just seeing whether there'd been any sabotage. And of course, we're there if anything happens, troops on the ground. And we'd been in theatre, I think, for about five or six weeks. And no one ever had a troops in contact. It was quite a benign theatre. And then we got called up the radios. I've been flying for about five hours at this point, And uh, we should be going home in about half an hour. Most of the flights are five to five, five to six hours. But we got called up and there was a troops in contact, which I believe was a Hampshire regiment. Um, Yes, I think it was a Hampshire regiment. And uh, they'd been hit by a roadside IED up in a town called Amara to the north. So I went up there, leaving Steve down south in Basra to cover the, the, the task down there. And when I when I started heading up there, it's only about nine minutes away if you're doing about 600 knots with the wings back and the, the fire out the back. The radio was, it was escalating. People were dying. It was pretty obvious. Soldiers were, were being killed. And um, we were burning fuel up, you know, like you read about. It was pretty horrendous. And so... We knew by the time we get there, we're going to have something like three minutes on task, maybe three minutes, 34 minutes max. And then we're going to have to head up to Baghdad for a tanker. And Baghdad, that's that's going to be something like, you know, 30 minutes flight time away to get a tanker up there, a British tanker. Because we've been on task down south for so long. And we we called up these this army unit and said, guys, we've got a four minute vol time here. And I got Steve to come up behind me and said, Steve, you better come up here, dude. I haven't got the fuel for this. He started coming up as well. And um, as we got there, we, the, the, basically, we got radio call. It said, "Look up, guys!" And we looked up, and the tanker from Baz, Baz, uh, Baghdad, sorry, come down. As we looked up, this huge British tanker came over the top. So we, um, they weren't supposed to leave their tow line, but they they'd done it because they knew what was happening. We went over that site at Amara, very low, very fast, wings back, fire out the back, 
you know, the swing wing messenger of death had arrived. You know, you, you don't want to mess around now because someone's going to gun you to death. Um, and back then, of course, I was a young, very angry man in cockpits. And um, but there was a lot of crowds on the ground. There were a lot of people. And although we we're getting targeting information about this crowd, like, can we target the crowd? We have to go through a flow chart in the jet kneeboard and we share it front to back. We have to get authority from external. We have to call up on the radio to commanders back home to say that this is the threat. And I wasn't happy with this threat because you, you can't just say that everyone within a crowd is insurgents. We don't, we're British, we don't do that, right? You know what I'm saying? And I'm looking down and I can see what looked like civilian activity down there, people going around this debris site of a Land Rover that had been blown across the road. And once we're looking and we're trying to do the targeting work, Steve came over the top. He did his pass, went straight up to the tanker. Uh, I went up to the tanker first, and Steve came in, then I came down again and um, went through the flow chart. And the army were calling for uh, a drop and we couldn't escalate it into a drop. We, we just couldn't drop. And another soldier died and we were told about that. Surreal things happen in this, this scenario. Surreal things happen. So we're doing all this and then a Hercules aircraft just flies underneath us. I mean, the whole place is burning. Just flies over the top and just goes and lands in a field. I'm like, where the hell's that come from? Like, they don't know who that Herc is. He's not on the same frequency. Is he part of this? Is he picking up casualties? No, no, no. We don't know who that is. Well, it's one of ours so someone must be speaking to him i mean surreal stuff happens really weird stuff so we're like well no one knows who that is and does he realize we're gonna drop bombs on him and um steve came down i had a chat with steve we can't do anything here dude another soldier died that was three i think um get, getting told about those and actually i'll tell you what was weird rich we we didn't drop it wasn't necessary people were dead already it wasn't going to stop people dying the army uh, evacuated themselves out of there and obviously left the, the Land Rover. This is the early days with the Snatch Land Rovers that were made of you know, paper mache and that kind of shit, right? Mm-hmm. These guys, you know, anything looks at that is going to get blown apart. We went back home. In fact, we followed the tanker back home. I think they thought it was eight hours in total. It, it sucked, totally sucked. And for the tornado, the engines tend to stop after torna- uh, after eight hours because they run out of oil. Not, you know, not, not fuel. The oil stops and the engines stop. But that was one of the last sorties I did in theater before being sent back for to be replaced. And I was on a flight uh, leaving wherever the, uh, was it Ali, Ali did, I think the flight left, going back home and sitting on that same flight um, were some of the regiment that had been on the ground that day. And it's surreal stuff, really weird. And we just got chatting, what do you guys do? I'm an infantry. what regiment are you in? I'm on the regiment of fusiliers, it could be, I don't know. I, no, 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 it's not, it's not that. Oh, I can't remember the Hampshire regiment now. Someone will correct me on this and tell me. And, um, <clears throat> and I said, all right, I was I was involved in uh, a troops in contact, contact up in, um, Amara, a couple of days ago, they're like, this guy's eyes were like thousand, you know, young dude, like 19 years old, thousand yards there. He's like, yeah, that was my guys. That was, that was me. I was there on the ground. I said, oh, I was the tornado. And he's like, dude, fuck. You were those two tornadoes. I said, yeah, I was the first one to come up. He's like, fuck, dude. Check this story, Rich. Check this story. This dude, this young dude, and there's him and his two boys on the seats next to me. And there's me and my nabs having a cup of tea down back. He says, right, here's the thing. We were in the smashed up or part of the smashed up Land Rover and we, we were treating the casualties. This young boy says to me, he says, one of those casualties, a really good friend of mine from back home, you know, grew up with this dude. I've got his hand. He's missing bits of him. I hate telling the story. I hate it. He says, but he's alive, right? He's alive. He's this dude's alive. And he um, he's like, he's like, mate, mate, we're gonna be fine, we're gonna be fine. Gonna be... And there's two or three of them in a really bad way. He's like, we're gonna be fine, we're gonna be fine. And this guy's like looking at him, he's he's still alive. And then the tornado come, I come over the top of him, apparently, and this guy says to his mate, he goes, mate, we're gonna be fine, we're gonna be fine. The big jets are here now. And that's what his mate died. 
right then. I mean, that's and that's the weird thing about it. There's these lives being lived and you can't control them at all. You put yourself there and you try and do what you can. But, you know, it, to be on that plane with that dude, I just sat there for the next, like, I think it was six hours with this guy. Just, you know, fucking sorry, dude. I couldn't do anything about that, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I used to work with this uh, guy that used to work for me um, back in the collection world. And he used to fly intruders off of aircraft carriers. And, um, and he said, um, you know, he was, he didn't really talk much about it. And I asked him one day, I said, so why did you stop doing that? Like, you know, flying, flying jets off an aircraft carrier. Like that seems like, like that would be my dream. Like that's, that was plan A for me was, was to be a military pilot. Yeah. Um, you know, didn't work out for me, but, um, he said, yeah, I just got tired of, um, you know, flying off the carrier and like killing people. Yeah. You know, I thought that was strange because like, isn't that why you sign up to be a military pilot? No, you sign up to be a pilot, Rich, because these things here look cool, don't they? They're, they're fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't think about having to drop bombs on people. You don't really consider Well, they don't get the bad guy, no? Well, who is the bad guy, though? I mean, you know, we talk about this belief system that was being fed to people, and you're very good when you talk about this, and yeah. I can extend that a little bit to, you know, who is the enemy of the country, and why am I out killing these dudes? I mean, what, what Iraqi ever did anything to me? I mean, you know, same with an Afghan, really. I mean, these are, these are people. They've got families. And as you age, of course, and if you get families of your own and nieces and nephews, you think, hang on a second, that's someone's father or brother. Any, we talked about the um, the value the value of a, a military aged male, didn't we? Anyone between the age of 16 and 45 isn't valued in society. I mean, you could argue men over the age of 16 aren't valued in society and entirely disposable. And that goes to both sides, of course. So you do get to the point, and I've had loads of, loads of my students have... Uh, and obviously people I've, I've flown with have killed a significant amount of people in strikes and they will have to deal with that later. There's a karmic, karmic debt that's going to come around for them and they'll have to rationalize that and rationalize the behavior. Um, and it, it, don't get me wrong. It's not that they ever wanted to do it. There's an order and you don't think about it because that's how you're trained. And so you do it. But then when you do leave, as your, as your A6 and Trudy guy would, would tell you, you do have to kind of rationalize that behavior. It's, um, and I must admit, with Iraq, a lot of my squadron was the first squadron to go in uh, at the time, 12 squadron. And we had lawyers sat with us and they were saying, look, we, you know, guys don't have an authorization to even be in country at the moment. If you drop any munitions, there's every chance you could end up in a court of law. And we can't protect you, by the way. That's why we had a flow chart uh, that was very much about whether we could. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So, so they put you in the aircraft over hostile territory and said that you haven't got the right to defend yourself? It's, it's difficult to defend because it was a permissive air environment. So it wasn't as if there was a significant air threat and the surface to missile systems had been had, had been destroyed. So for us, we were able to, to pretty much have the airspace to ourselves. I mean, there's times when you don't, when you get too close to the Iranian border and the Iranians get a bit upset with you. And that's a difficult, that's a different story and probably one I shouldn't tell on, on here. But um you you're if you end up on the ground yeah someone's going to hopefully come and find you that's the that's the deal mm -hmm. but if you were to drop munitions on on any people or targets at that time we were working with a un mandate that was from the previous conflict and really we should have had another one and we didn't was this have from that. round one um... that's round one yeah Gulf war one yeah so we're still working that okay. one okay but we went back in 2003 i think it was 2004 something like that okay and my i was there 2006 seven i believe it was round so, one was just to push the iraqis out of kuwait right Pretty much, yeah, exactly yeah. that. You know, huge okay. ground forces swell and everything else. And of course, the country continued, and then we went to remove Saddam um, because there weren't any good targets in Afghanistan after. Well, right. you know, it's all that kind of stuff. So it was yeah. all a bit of a mess, to be fair. What did that feel like when, 
when you went on a run and you dropped your munitions and, and you kind of look back and you see everything and, and when it's like well it's all done for training to be fair so in, in training is no real difference and uh it isn't a difference then in fact in my iraq tours i didn't drop live um most of the squadron didn't drop live a lot of live drops went on in syria i wasn't part of that uh, i was on the ground in afghanistan so for us we chose a force we're doing a lot of reconnaissance work and fortunately we and i say fortunately because later on when we did leave theater there was a lot of kinetic action and uh a lot of it not all positive um but when you do drop heavy munitions we we, we do drop them on ranges in the uk special places they, they you have these um charges on the bombs because bombs need to be thrown clear of the aircraft so we have explosive bolts that go bang pushes the weapon down and uh, then the weapon either comes out of the port small parachute if it's a retard or it comes free fall and are you allowed to say a retard in the military still oh yes yeah, good point i'm doing that <laughs> well I'll, I'll be fair with you but I, I did red flag in america right and they don't use the word box over there they they they, they call it um they don't use the word head they they call it cranium so they say craniums up as opposed okay. to heads up. That was going back to 2007. That's how the Americans had gone back then. So how America is now, I have no idea. But yeah, there's certain words. We're, we're okay. We're just British, right? So yeah. we can we can use whatever words we want and no one really cares. But it's no, just, point, actually. Yeah, it's, it's odd because, I mean, you don't hear that word so much anymore. I mean, you know, as an aside, I was um, I was out on a date once and I, I don't know, I said something like, oh, that's, I'm not even going to say the word. So it's R. And then, you know, she got upset. I'm like, well, what are you getting upset for? You know, I was just stating that, you know, this is something, right? And she's like, well, you know, my little brother is autistic and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, oh. You said, you said the word retard. No, I said something was, you know, basically retarded, retarded you know, being yeah, yeah. being stupid. Because that's because that's the way that we used to phrase it, you know, when we were kids, right? It's just like language that you understand. And I mean, like we were on your channel before. You guys should really go watch the conversation I had on Tim's channel. It's... um. Sorry, it's Fast Jet Performance is the channel name again? Yeah, Fast Jet Performance on YouTube, yeah. Yeah, check it out. You know, we had a conversation about my book and political correctness and a bunch of stuff, but have a look at that. No, it just, you know, just kind of sparked a little bit of a, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You know, is that a word that's been removed from the military? Is it like, what's the military like today now in, uh, well, in the Royal Air Force? Like, is it more woke? Is it more politically correct? Has certain words been removed from the language that like, you know, like the Top Gun guys would sort of use? I, I mean, you're a very, like... If I were to describe Tim Davies to somebody, um, for your age, you got a lot of energy, a lot of charisma. Like to me, you would look like the average fighter pilot sort of guy, right? Well, exceptionally good looking, Rich, as I'm saying. Well, I'm not into that, but I'm sure your wife enjoys it. You you know, you know. Um, Yeah, okay, what is it like? So also, if we are using the word retarded, that just means reduction in speed. That means to slow something down. Right. So if someone else wants to take issue with that, I'd say that they were the person that had an agenda somewhere not me i'm using it to i'm using it i'm saying that's retarded that's 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 slowing this progress down for example and yeah. they're saying that is i'm talking about disabled children i mean come on it's ridiculous i mean what's going on in their head right so in the military unfortunately it has been um infused with a woke a woke agenda the us air force are doing very well with this by the way because they're seem they seemingly managed to sort of change this around and get back to squadron life again the heart of squadron life you know the vehicles this is what i'm hearing anyway so you know, fighter pilots being fighter pilots and stuff because you know I, i've done some videos on my channel about this um i did one i don't know whether your channels get your videos must get demonetized all the time I yeah i get slapped that. around a little bit by youtube yeah. and some people yeah so i i got demonetized on one i called a red pilled fighter pilot um goes against woke something blah you know i'm god that was never gonna youtube are gonna hate that 
But that was one of my fighter pilots uh, on Typhoon, one of my students who contacted me and said, I'm in trouble. I said, what are you in trouble about? He said, um, in my signature block, I, I had this phrase. I said, oh, what's that? He's got to put, everyone's got to put pronouns now in there, or, you know, the whole, it's, it's gone in, it's gone in. Um, and he'd written something like, um, I was talking about this the other day, he'd written something like, uh, the Royal Air Force is, is here to fight and win, and those that don't fly support those that do. Something very fighter pilot, alpha-y. It's like, I'm the daddy, I go to war, you guys just do the typing and supply me. Now, we know it's not true, and I did a video about it, but he got complained about by anonymous source on something called, the form was called, um, something like a grievance form or something that could be delivered anonymously. <clears throat> it wasn't around in my time because I would have kicked off like like 10 men. But he um, he went, someone's complained about it. It's gone to the boss. The boss is, uh, has told me to take it down, write an apology to whoever this person is. And I wrote out, because obviously I get sent loads of stuff from the military still by people still in, because I put it on the channel. The Air Force hates that, by the way, but it, it shouldn't. It should just be more open, and then I wouldn't have to put it on the channel. And basically, he he was um, yeah he was reprimanded for writing. And you should have a look at the video, Richard, because it's it's awful. I mean, the person complaining is saying that he was a, or they were offended. We don't know who they were. They were offended. It almost seemed like someone thought they were better than someone else in the military. And I argue that someone who's been training and, and is flying typhoons over Syria and he's done six or seven years worth of flying training might be better than a typist that's been in the service for 18 months. That's yeah. all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Might be a little bit. Mm. We don't appreciate excellence anymore. And this is why your book's so good, by the way, because you're trying to start this again, aren't you? You're saying, look, make yourself excellent. Make People will come to you if you do the work. Yeah. That's that's all that Flying Jets is about. It's like, it's a constant. It's a constant strive to not die, not kill the wrong people, to be as good as you can be. That's what's, what the, what's the success rate for people that get into the Royal Air Force that, that want to fly the fast equipment? So when I was instructing on uh, these, uh, well, it's the, uh, there's the top one there, but it's a newer jet. And I, I instructed on that one as well. So I did that for a, a decade, stopped about two and a bit years ago. Um, we would try and keep the what we call the chop rate, the people that we have to remove from flying training. We try and keep it as low as possible because when you chop someone, they've already come through elementary flying training, which they've done for about a year, basic fast jet flying training. They've done that for about a year, plus holds in between where they have to, you know, just sit around for a couple of months until the course starts. And then they've been flying with us probably about 18 months. And if you've got to fail them, then they've got to go and start. Not again. They, they won't start. They've done elementary flying training, but they have to start on rotary or they have to with helicopters or they have to go onto multiple engine aircraft. My brother was a pilot on Hercules, for example. And that's a massive, it's labor intensive and it's a waste of resource because, you know, we can get them through on jets and we will try. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, some people will um, reach their limit and I, I struggled at the very end of my flying training on air combat, but then I did really well on the operational conversion unit on the tornado. I did really well on that. So we know that some people just get burnt out. And if we can just get them to that next stage, they go like this again, you see? It's just get them, keep them inspired, motivated. They're good people. So um, a lot of it is coaching, of course, which I still do now with men. So we, we would have around about, I would say, 10 to 15% failure rate coming through the flight school I had. And we just really try to keep that as low as possible. But some people are just intent on killing themselves, unfortunately, and they've used the budget for it. Was it was it low because of physical limitations, or was it low because of acumen? Like they weren't able to complete the studies, the tests, answer the questions correctly. Yeah, flying ability just flying gets eroded. Ability. I mean, from the beginning, though, the thing about flying in the Air Force, which I'm sure you're aware, is you self-select. So you have to say, "I want to fly jets," or "I want to fly full stop." I want to join the military. You self-select. 
and you present at a careers office and you say, hey, I want to be in the military. And that careers office says, are you the right height? You know, wait, you know, can you see? All that. And of course, we, a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get past that phase. Although they are changing limitations on that now. They, they're going and having a look at this again because they realize we're losing a lot of good people um, by things that we, you know, we should be able to use corrective or laser surgery on the eyes. So they are looking at that. Then if you get past that stage, you go to Officer Air Crew Selection Center and, and you may not get through the interview stage. And I didn't for the Royal Air Force. I never got through it. I, I joined the Navy and then somehow got into the Air Force when the Air Force were desperate for pilots. You know, luckily they did because um, I was I was awesome. No, I was just I ended up doing a lot of instruction um, for the Air Force and stayed, of course, 20 years. And then, of course, you've got to get through your flying training. You've got to get through officer training first and then your flying training. And if you think about the the chop rate from the the initial presentation at the careers office of, of the, the young man or woman or they, whatever gender stuff we're into now, of saying, hello, I'd like to join. How many they they go? And then how many come out as a fast jet pilot at the end? It's actually There's actually less fast jet pilots in, in the UK than there are premiership footballers. It's just that hard to get through the system. There's no accurate way of forecasting what the chop rate is. You can do it for each school. You can do it for, this is Dartmouth here. I went to Dartmouth, not Cranwell, so it's a naval college. You could look at how many people didn't get through there. And then you take all of, all of up and you say, well, say we had 50 fast jet guys start. We end up with maybe 12, something like that. Same way that you know you would with any special forces selections, the same, mm -hmm. isn't it? So we don't really know. But it's not there's not many people that get to the end, to be fair. Was, was every day for you like an exciting day? Like, you know, I could picture you, you know, with your equipment gear on, your G-suit, your helmet, and you're walking up to the jet. I mean, like, did you think to yourself every time that you had to go out, you know, I can't believe I get paid to do this. Like, you know, this is my job. This is awesome. Or did you have days where you're like, come on, like, we got to get this done here. You know, let's get this thing over with so I can go home. Yeah, I think every day is pretty much like that. Was it? I mean, there's a lot of pressure. This is what people don't realize about flying jets. You can get it wrong. You're only as good as your last trip, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you're not dead, that's a bonus because a lot of my friends did die. Um, when you say a lot, lot, like what percentage? So well, how many? So that's a good point. Actually, we used to kill a lot more than other militaries. We had Australian pilots with us at the time, and the Australian guys were like, "How come you guys keep, keep ejecting, and, and how come you guys keep killing people?" And they hadn't had a fatality. Now the thing about the Royal Air Force and, and the Navy is that we used to do a lot of low-level training. We, used, we were flying the Harrier. That was quite a difficult aircraft. Um, mm. A lot of night work, NVGs, night vision goggles, train following radar stuff, stuff that was hazardous. We pushed that limit in training. And the Australians tended to fly a lot of medium level stuff, especially with the Hornet, which had a lot of safety systems on it at the time. They didn't have the uh, twin engine airplane, all that kind of stuff. It didn't have the sort of the fatality rate we did. So that caused us to look at things. When it comes down to how many percentage, I don't know. I could um, I stopped counting at 30. And they weren't all fast jet mates as well. They were some were multi-engine guys that we lost rotary as well was it was it mostly training was it mostly combat or was it just a mixture no not not much was in combat or, or, if any it was in combat it was all in training and you've really? got to ask yeah you've got to ask yourself if we're losing people in training all the time but not in frontline work then are we really doing the right thing because mm. surely you'd want that to be well you'd, you'd want to well you wouldn't want anything of course but you'd expect there to be a balance and of course there wasn't the, the flying that we did with hindsight especially on the tornado going back in the day was um, it, it's uh, I keep saying this. It's um, when you are doing that job is a hundred percent, your marriage will suffer. In fact, everyone's marriage suffers because you have a choice. Uh, you either look after the students and the pilots you're flying with and yourself, 
or you look after the marriage and sometimes there's not time for two because you've got to do the work in the evening to read the books, to make sure you're sharp, to read the check cards, to learn the airplanes, the systems, the, the teach that you've got to do the next day. So a lot of time you would walk to the jet going, I hope this thing breaks because I need to get back in and do the do the, pipe, do the paperwork. I've got to do the emails, Rich. You know what I mean? I've got to, I've got to speak to the boss. The boss wants me in his office. Um, and sometimes the jet did break and you'd come back in. But once the jet was started up, you know, you're fully focused on doing the task and you'd um, go. But yeah, I don't think it's... Um, it's like speaking to rock stars, isn't it? I'm sure you've got loads of rock star mates. They will say the same thing. You know, touring does suck after a while. Was there ever, um, like, what's it like flying a fast jet? So um, I got a bit of a bucket list item. I know that there's, um, I can't remember where it is in Russia, but there's a place in Russia where you can go and you can go up in the, I think it's a MiG-29 yeah. backseat. Yeah. It's like 15 grand. You know, they'll throw you up. They'll do some maneuvers, 15, yeah. 20 minutes or something like that. What's it like being in one of those? Like, is there anything that you can compare it to? I think the thing about it is interesting, isn't it? If I was to jump in Lewis Hamilton's Formula One car, the whole process of being strapped in and being in the garage and not knowing what was going on would be completely alien to me. I would never be able to perform at the way Lewis would because Lewis has, has been in that environment forever, hasn't he? So he understands it. For him, he can get those tires up to temperature. He can get the brakes up to temperature. He knows how to do that. I have no bloody clue. So if you go and fly that MiG out in, in Russia, you'll get the briefs, you'll have the medical. Um, it'll feel very alien to you and you'll feel very nauseous. And if I went back to flying now, if I had more than about two months off flying, I'd, I'd feel nauseous on the first couple of trips. It, it, you're strapped in. So a lot of people don't like this. They can't really move. You can release a lever and move forwards, but you, you know, I used to leave myself strapped in. G is something most people have never really experienced in their life, maybe on a roller coaster, maybe hard braking or acceleration in a car. I mean, I know you got rid of the R8 now and you've got the 720, but in the RS, I've got the RS4 and it's been all upgraded. My wife complains that her neck hurts after we drive it because, of course, mm -hmm. you know, we do have acceleration and we do have braking and it does trigger the muscles down here. Cornering, yeah. Cornering, everything. Cornering is, is, under, is underrated, uh, underestimating, isn't it? I don't know, Lotus Elise, it's exactly the same thing. You do trigger these muscles you wouldn't normally trigger if you're driving your Yeah, but I mean, a car can do like one, one, one G in a bit, like, you know, like yeah. 1.1, 1.2, maybe if you've got Corsa tires on it, like not even close to a jet. But a jet, remember, it's all through the normal axis. It's all through the head going down. A jet will accelerate, and it doesn't throw you back necessarily. A catapult launch, of course, will do, but most jets will just come off the brakes and roll forward. You won't be pinned back in your seat because you're, you're getting airborne with maybe nine tons of fuel or something, and your jet weighs almost 30 tons. So it starts, reheat, you'll feel like the kick. But you're not pinned back in a jet. You'll get airborne. Um, with air brake, you may get moved forward a little bit, but you're not thrown forward. I mean, you're obviously, in a, in, a, in, a, in a launch, sorry, a recovery on a carrier, you will be. <clears throat> excuse me so and even when you roll in an airplane you're still strapped into the seat so there, there's some head movement because the helmet weighs quite a bit and it can move there but you're still manageable mm -hmm. and you build the next muscles up uh, the neck muscles up so really the g you pull comes through this axis here and and the aircraft here the hawk is the one that can get to you know six or seven g faster than any aircraft that we have much faster than tornado much faster than typhoon f-35 it just gets there quickly, and that's called G onset rate. So that aircraft in the Royal Air Force killed more people than any other aircraft. Uh, ironically, it was a training airplane as well. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Um, a lot of these things I didn't know. There was a um, there's a documentary I, I watched once on the uh, Raptor when they were developing it, and um, I think they said something along the lines that they had to engineer in the flight systems. Um, and I'm going to use the word retarded retarded um you know feedback to, to certain controls because they realized that if you did something with the stick that maybe the plane was capable of doing 
it might kill the pilot. So they had to retard certain controls so that it wouldn't affect the meatball in the cockpit. Is this is this like the last generation of uh, piloted planes that we're dealing with today? Like is being a fast jet pilot going to be obsolete in the next decade or so? I did a lot of study into this because I, I was a strategy director for a, a startup called Aerolist when I first left the Air Force. And we felt that we were making the last flying training airplane, a manned flying training airplane. Mm -hmm. So with that aircraft, there was another role where it could be a, a drone or a loyal wingman or a remote carrier, unmanned, basically. And we just think that you're getting to the point now where you don't necessarily need a human in the cockpit. Post F-35 world, we don't think we do need a, a human there. Swarms, drones, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the maneuverability of some of these platforms now is so intense that you wouldn't be able to fully anything above about nine G. You have to have spe well, that's actually wrong. Sustained six, seven. You have to have pressure breathing. So you have G pants, but you have pressure suits on the chest that force oxygen, force air into the lungs to compress the chest cavity. Typhoon has that. So the guys can sit there at nine G, looking out the top, fighting people. The whole body is being compressed to keep the blood in the brain. That's the thing to try and keep the blood up there because if you remove the blood from the brain, you take the oxygen from the brain, and then you get G-induced loss of consciousness. You get um, A-lock, P-lock, anything like that, where the brain says, oh, I haven't got enough here. I'm just going to shut down for a bit and protect the heart because the heart's bumping, all that stuff. And the brain is the most energy-resourcive, energy-intensive organ we have. Uh, and that's how we lose people. So why is that person still in the cockpit? Why do we have that limitation now? And the, the thing you're talking about is called Q-feel. It allows you to feel... Uh, flight control systems that are that are that are heavy and clunky it puts springs in there and it makes them feel because the problem is it's a mechanical thing so no matter how fast i go i pull this i pull this back here elevator goes like this elevator doesn't matter what speed it's going at because it, it's got a hydraulic system attached to it so if i'm doing 600 knots and i do this one of two things happen the tail gets ripped off and my elevator gets ripped off or the aircraft inverts itself and i end up in the bottom right hand corner of the cockpit half dead so we put this limitation so at 600 knots, when I pull back, I physically can't pull back to create a G or a deflection of that tailplane that will damage the airplane in any way. Flight control systems stop you doing that now. So all modern aircraft have flight control systems. And I teach on the, the F-18, the Hornet, and that's a that's a very clever system. It won't let you stall the airplane. It will just fly itself out. It's no yeah, I, yeah, I heard no there was problem. a few planes where they engineered systems where if you do black out because of a G, you know, like a G-induced black, blackout, the plane just kind of levels out. Yeah, yeah, that's come, right. Um, uh, the Americans have got a system on the F-16 that, that does this. I can't remember what it's called. Someone will tell me. I should know what it's called. But it, it, you're absolutely right. It reaches it reaches a certain height and goes, ah, we're going to recover you now. And yeah. we recover. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of fighter pilots, I've learned, tend to go into airline uh, flying. Is there a reason why you didn't do that? My brother does it. My brother flies 777s for Emirates out of Dubai. Um so I vicariously live, you know, his sex life through, you know, through him basically because he, he's single. He's, uh, yeah, exactly. Why well, he's single? Yeah, <laughs> he's single at forty. He's a player. He probably follows you, Rich. I have to stop him. To be fair, he probably, probably taught him everything he knows. Um, he he flew Hercules and then he went he went uh, to Canada. In fact, flew Hercs for the Canadians out of Trenton. You're in Ottawa, aren't you? So Toronto, yeah. Toronto, yeah. So he yeah, was Trenton's in Trenton. a few hours uh, east of me. That's right. So I flew into Toronto to see him and then drove out there, sort of thing. And we went skiing up in one of your resorts, Cameron was now. So he was flying out of there, Hercules, five years. And then he left that, went over to um, the Middle East to fly with Emirates. And he does long haul with 777s. And he has a great time, loves it. You know, he's a, he's a good dude. For me, that's the side of flying that I always hated, the transits. 
when I go on holiday, I'm the worst passenger in the world. I'm like, this sucks. I don't want to be back here. You know what I mean? I just want to be on the ground. I want to finish that stuff. So I hate the whole airport experience. Mm-hmm. I hate the, the security. I hate the baggage. I hate the, I hate it. So why would I do that as a job? You know what I mean? I'm a bit of an entrepreneur like yourself. Most people, when they come out of the military, aren't. They like the stability of, of conformity and and and, uh, and someone else, you know, going to work for someone else. My brother was into that, so he did, and I didn't. And I started a couple of businesses or whatever, and I run those now. A bit of contract work here and there, much like yourself, I guess. And I just didn't particularly want to sit in an airliner. I've been flying for 20 years, and, you know, that, to me, airline flying isn't really the flying I want to do. It's the maintenance of the system, which is exciting in its own own realm, you know, lots of things mm-hmm. in your own. Uh, I just, I knew, I knew that wasn't for me. Is there anything that you would do differently, um, you know, from like the get-go? Like if you could go back and talk to your 21-year-old self, would you dispense some advice that would be useful that you would have adopted at that time? About the, about the military and the career? Uh, both, you know, you know, within the uh, confines of playing to win in your life. Because I mean, it, yeah. you know, it's a lot of work to be successful as an Air Force pilot. <clears throat> yeah, I think... I probably would have left about eight years early. No, six years early than I did. So maybe done 14 years, not 20. We got to 2011 and I joined the squadron, this squadron here, which is called, um, uh, we went from the T1 and we brought this aircraft in here called the T2. So I was teaching from about 2011 on that aircraft. It's an update. Is that the Tiger? Uh, this one here is the Hawk T2. This oh, one okay. here. These yeah, are squadron yeah. pilots for four squadron. Uh, we had 28 of these aircraft. We brought them in 2011 onto a squadron called four squadron. And I was down, I was teaching from about 2007 on the, on the Hawk T1, uh, taught on that one up there, taught that for about four, four years, almost five in the end. Went to Afghanistan with the US Army uh, and then came back onto the new Hawk we brought in. We brought in a new Hawk. You should never really bring in a, or never be involved in a Mark One aeroplane when it comes in. And the Hawk T2 was a brand new aeroplane. There's a lot of work to be done, a lot of work. And it's stressful as hell. And you're working with a civilian contractor who weren't the best. They were set up, they were new. Um, and they were struggling themselves. I would have, I would have told myself with hindsight, not ever get, never get involved in that. You speak to the F thirty five guys now, and a lot of them are like, "I wish I joined this jet five years later, when it's been squared away and you know, all the bugs have been ironed out and all the policies and procedures have been written." And I, in twenty eleven, my father died as well. I came back from Afghanistan to bury him. Went back out, came back again, and the whole thing. We had some fatalities in twenty thirteen. My first students were killed. Uh, and the whole the whole workload was was horrific, and so I ended up really struggling from about 2013 onwards, probably until I left, I guess. And I wouldn't I would say there's still work being done now. So I would I would I would probably say, look, get in, get into the military, burn bright, do the work, but don't leave it too late to exit and do something else. Because when you do leave the military after 20 years, you've been so involved in jet aviation, it's very hard to to turn onto something else. And to start that. And as you know, Rich, when we hit 40, our energy levels go down. It's a constant battle to try and keep them up. Um, we have to do things. And this is why your TRT stuff was very interesting to me. Uh, I think it should, I think a lot of men should should look at that sort of thing, to be fair. And I, I think now starting a business, you know, I, I'd like to have been young, had the confidence to have started something when I was small. All I'll say to people, <clears throat> if you are going to go and do something that's highly specialist and highly niche, it's just devote a little part of your life to maybe investing. Obviously, let's look at Bitcoin. Let's look at, um, say, NFTs, for example. There was nowhere in my life in the evenings where I could any, invest any time in anything like that because I was reading the books and, and lesson planning, and it's 100% occupation. You never get away from it. Never get away from it. And that's why I suggest people do it for less time and leave earlier 
and start a second career that you can really invest in and that that will take you through the next 20 years don't do it the way i did it do 15 to start next one do you think that the air force um you know whether it's ground or navy do you think that the air force is a good place for a young man to be today or they're like is it a hostile environment i mean you know for example i've got um I got a coaching client that's uh, younger. He's a twenty-something naval officer um, yeah. in the U.S. and he's se- and he's seen the writing on the wall. He's not going to stay in the Navy much longer. He's just seen like the wokeness, and they're promoting incompetent uh, people to positions that would put others at risk just because of their gender. Um, is it like that in the U.K. as well? Like, is it a place that men can still excel, or is it hostile towards men, or is it getting hostile? So I, I left in 20, I left mid 2018. And uh, if I'd seen this coming, if I'd seen this woke agenda and the quotas and everything coming, I would have stayed in and fought it because I'm, I fight against this. You know, I hate this whole, I would have stayed in and I would have risked career and everything. I would have said, chuck me out. I'm not going to stand for any of this stuff. I'm not going to stand for DNI training. You're not going to tell me about DNI my training. With... Oh, sorry. Diversity and inclusivity. I think you oh, they actually have, have, have yeah. it in the system uh, now. Okay. Well, we don't have the equity part. Okay. Uh, I think the die bit is the I think Americans have diversity, equity, and inclusivity, and and I don't I don't think as of yet we did have um, there was a DNI week in the Royal Air Force, and on Thursday morning, and I wrote back to them and said, "You need to take this out because uh, the morning's lecture on the Thursday was about white privilege." <laughs> oh, you, you can't even make that shit up, Rich. And I was like, "Come on, you're uh, like ninety nine point eight percent your military is white, and you're going to lecture people." And I said, and also Boris Johnson had just come out. Our prime minister had just come out and said that we're not going to teach this in formal academic settings. We're not going to teach people this. And I said, "Your prime minister has just said, like literally two weeks ago, that you're not to teach this, and you've got it on your program." Mm-hmm. I can. I, I'm quite combative with the DNI people within the military. Still on Twitter, you'll see me get piled on from everyone. I'm like. I'm about I'm about meritocracy, okay? And what a lot of people will say, Rich, is, well, not everyone's got the same chances, have they? And I'm like, what chance do you think I had? I failed all my A-levels. I got, my A-levels were uh, E, E, and um, was it E, E, and an N. So an N and two E's, all right? Had to go to university in Bristol, some polytechnic to do an H&D. You know, my, my dad was a police officer. My mother was a health visitor. There was no money in the family. I'm one of four kids. There's no money there. You know what I'm saying? I was the guy not supposed to get in. And yet you're telling me how privileged I was. It's, it's an utter sham. And now it is, unfortunately, it's gone through the military. I do argue the Navy seemed to have gripped this a little bit better than most of the other services. Fair play. They're the senior service. They're the most mature. The Army's... The thing is, the Army, what does the Army do when it's back home? It goes, does training. It's pretty bored. So it probably goes, this would be a good idea. Let's get involved in diversity and inclusivity because then we can virtue signal. And there's something about young Army officers that tend to be very virtuous because they're looking after young men and women. I understand that. And the Air Force, it just wants to put you know, it just wants to get invested in this stuff. And it has. And I speak to pilots still flying, as I told you the story about the young typhoon pilot the other day, um, earlier in this, sorry. And uh, luckily, most of the guys now have gone, we're just going to go sit there and go home, go and do the lecture, come home. But then where's the pushback? Like your like your naval student is saying, your naval client is saying, what's going to happen in 20 years time is you're just going to be led by incompetency at the top, probably more so than you are now, to be fair. Yeah, like would the um, Chinese or Russian military be pushing this agenda on their pilots, on their captains of their warships? You know, I would imagine no, right? No, because they're not idiots, are they? Russians and Chinese are not idiots. They understand that warfighting is for warfighters, okay? So let's look at what warfighter is. Who's the best warfighter? Is it a five foot four 
young woman. Well, it might be if a lot of typing is involved, and it is when he comes down to cyber and everything else. But if you want to put troops on the ground, I said this to my wife the other day because she talked about we were talking about um, it was something about dominant relationships or the most dominant partner. And I think at one point she said, "Well, I'm the dominant one in the relationship. I leave the house and go to work." And I said, "Let's go down to the pub. I'll punch the dude in the face if you want, but then you can be the dominant partner in the relationship. See how it works out for you." It's just one of those things. Rome didn't have lots of weak centurions, did it? It went, who's the most aggressive, nasty people we can have in warfighting? Why don't we make them our warfighters? That'll be good. That'll be yeah. good. The next time you hear a bang in the night, just just give her an elbow and say, you know what? Why don't you get this one, you know, since you're the one. dominant one? You check that one. Yeah, you yeah. go down and do that. Yeah, I get it though, Rich, because in relationships, there's lots of tension and people say things sometimes. And she apologized for that a, a week later anyway. But uh, I understand what she meant was, you know, she felt... Um, less of a, a role for some reason that's what she come out with but there is this unfortunate quota element within the military now where we are saying well everyone can be a jet pilot and i'm like yeah you try that let me know when they die by the way because they will yeah. at some point in flying training they will die most people do the funny thing is rich these jets here right these jets here any airline guy will tell you exactly the same thing they don't care about your gender or your skin color they don't even know these are not woke jets they don't you don't go in there and go i'm just gonna type in by the way i'm a young black dude okay i, I might i might have a feminine tendencies no no it, it just cares about your ability it's a it's a meritocracy out there you get that wrong you die it's a black and white thing it's a black and, i've told many women pilots this just because you're a woman it doesn't matter this thing this will kill you fast it'll just kill you, all right it will kill you don't worry about that i've trained gay men i've trained straight men i've gained you know, women uh, uh, nationalities over anything you know black people different colors you know, saudis anything i've trained them all they all die in the same way everyone dies in the same way okay and then you find out that the blood inside people strangely enough is the same color it's does does this woke agenda this political correctness agenda that's um you know getting pushed through the military does this put countries at risk you know like does it does it weaken the military? I mean, like I've seen the general pacification of the Western male. And we talked about that on your channel when we did the interview. Yeah. I mean, we mostly talked about my book and, you know, some of the concepts around that when we were on your channel. But I'm curious about your perspective, you know, when it comes like, are you embarrassed, you know, to the state of where the mil military is going? Like, are you seeing uh, places like Russia and China becoming a serious threat because we're spending too much time worried about uh, diversity inclusivity training and white privilege training I, I know a lot of warfighters in the military still i know a lot of senior commanders in the military and they're good people and they're not going to let this stuff erode capabilities although arguably the british army is struggling recently i'm not having to go british army but they have been called in front of the secretary of state for defense to explain a lot of things about bullying and other things that they've got going on in there and this is a leadership issue uh, i don't see our military at the moment significantly weaker than it ever has been and a caveat by saying certain elements might well be armor brigades things like that where we haven't got the correct equipment in or procurement has been particularly poor but when it comes down to the teaching the, the the teaching of pilots for example and i'm still very close to that i don't see that as being eroded by any dni policy at the moment but remember it takes a long time to get someone into a, a, to become an instructor they join they've got to go onto a front line so they join five years worth of flying training they might do a, a four to six year frontline tour and then they come back as an instructor so we've got to wait 11 or 12 years before we see any kind of element or an erosion of capability or or, or cognitive ability within the instructor carter for the jets i i reposted something and i think you saw it from from the, the Russian Prime Minister, President Putin, of course, sorry, that, yeah. Prime Minister, President Putin, so not France, um, where he put a speech out. <laughs> and, you know, arguably, 
he has been part of a, a an active subversion campaign into the West for a significant period of time, maybe from the mid to late sixties or early seventies, where he's looked to push these agendas, and it probably started with. Um, and I, I can't really. I mean, the Will Nolan, who I interviewed last week, would talk more about the literature that can tell you this. And I don't want to be labelled as a bigot or anything on your channel by by saying, you know, embracing things like gay marriage or something. However, we feel about gay marriage. Will was a Roman Catholic who I interviewed, and he didn't believe in gay marriage. Didn't believe. Should, fine, that's him. Let's not go there. But of course, that came into the West, didn't it? And then we start talking about diversity, and we celebrate it, and everything else. Russia recognised where this was going in its own country and it didn't allow these things and it kept it very conservative and very conformist. And China, exactly the same now, is saying with video games, you can't have effeminate characters, you can't have, you know, uh, people with mixed weird genders. And I see that we've embraced it all. And it, unfortunately, what happens, we're a very liberal country and in order to be subverted, you must be able to be subverted. You must be allowing yourself to be subverted. And it just seems that our liberal bias that we have within your country especially, Rich, is one of the ones that we should be really looking hard at. But America especially, is, and, and us as well, and a lot of the European countries, we allow these views credibility. And arguably, they should be openly challenged and contested. And of course, we're not able to because you get cancelled. And cancel culture is a real thing. And we see it with academics in the UK. So I, don't, I see the Russian and the Chinese militaries embracing the potential erosion of a capable Western military the withdrawal from afghanistan didn't help the americans whatsoever the way that was done did it unfortunately mm. it, it embraced these things and it, it it when it levels up it looks for us to be leveling down um and unfortunately i'm happy to be out but again i'd love to still be in to be able to be part of keeping the military what it should be yeah i feel like um we'll see what happens over the next decade or two i mean we'll see how it all unfolds but it doesn't look promising you know for western countries the way they're going right now well, we've been on an island somewhere, just chilling out, sports cars, that kind of stuff. Yeah, where's that island? I, I want to go to that one, that island. Yeah, we'll have to find it somewhere. Yeah. We'll make one up. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to take another ten minutes or so. Do you have, yeah, do you have no, enough time to do a full hour? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Let's do that. Um, what was it like for you as a guy playing a win in his life in the military as a Royal Air Force tornado pilot, managing family, marriage, you know, your relationship with your wife during that time? Like, was it taxing? I've, I've. You know, I've talked to a lot of guys in the military that um, mostly in the U.S. and they have a term for it. You know, they call them Jody, where they go away, they get deployed and they find out that their girlfriend, oh, yeah. wife, whoever was uh, getting uh, serviced by a guy named Jody, uh, you know, while he was away. Um, how was it for you to manage your marriage and your uh, personal life in the military? Well, it's very easy, isn't it, to, um, to, to gain affection from married women especially in remote locations because they're they're pretty bored aren't they the problem with our military not all the military there are some good places you can be based but i was based in the north of scotland Lossiemouth, and i was based in in on anguissey uh, north wales very remote places of course and i was lucky that my wife started a business we didn't have children and we don't have children so she did start a business and she was a chiropractor so she was occupied pretty much but of course also empowered and of course you have this dynamic in the military where you you want to marry and you do select uh, an alpha woman pretty much because you go to war and you you want that woman to be able to hold her own in the bar there's never a wife of anyone if there is they stand out a mile off that can't hold their own in the bar you don't want to bring your woman to the bar i hate the term woman rich sorry for saying that you don't want to bring your wife or your girlfriend to the bar and um and her to be a meek little thing because it's it's like hang on a second what's going on here? you know what i'm saying she needs to be able to hold her own when you're away she's running the house 
And now, remember, there, there are women I've trained to fly, um, to, to, to fly fast jets as well. They have husbands as well. And the husbands, again, they're, they're strong alpha characters. They need to be. They need to be able to hold the home fort. The problem, of course, with that is they've also got this mind, haven't they, that allows them to, to think that they can um, obviously leave a life of independence. And, and often women do. I had um, one of my senior instructors, good dude, actually. He's, in, uh, he's overseas now, shall we say. I do tell the story. He's a, he's a good guy. I did a podcast with him a long time ago. I, uh, he, his, uh, he found out his wife was having an affair. And uh, he smashed the place up, basically. He's, he's, he'd been out on um, a detachment. His wife had also been there. He came home and found all the text messages coming in. You know what I'm saying? When you use on these Apple products. Mm. And she'd been seeing someone else out there. They were both out there. So, of course, he smashed his house up. Now he's a pilot. So um, he puts all this stuff on Facebook. And I'm like, dude, what's up? Phone. Like, come on. Anyway, um, went to see the dude. Sort him out, calming down, never going to, because he put everything up on Facebook, it's never going to be reconciled. The thing about it was, though, now he hasn't got a marriage anymore. Lucky he didn't have any kids. Wife's still out there. The boss, in his infinite wisdom, and most bosses aren't that wise, to be fair. They just played the game. Yes, men had decided then that this man was too unstable to fly. So the next day when he came into work, he said, well, he's not flying. We've cancelled all his trips. I'm like, boss, this man has nothing else. He's got nothing else. He's got no marriage. He smashed his house up. You know what I mean? He's a good dude. He's my top guy. He's not going to do anything. Let him fly. He's an instructor. He's my top instructor. Let him fly. Boss was like, no. Went to the dude and said, look, I can't solve this today. But, you know, go home, chill, rebuild your house. Tomorrow when you come and we'll go flying together, all right? Now, that's like a massive no-no because the boss has said he can't fly. The dude comes in the next day. He's angry. Like, this guy's turbo angry. The whole squadron knows he's angry. Even the students know he's angry, all right? It's like, geez. He's, he's, he's just telling anyone who's listening, Rich, how evil his wife was. She was um, in the military as well. So this woman was very alpha. So in her mind, she can do what she wants, right? You know, she can have these things. She can be... Men and women are the same, right? There you go. Yeah. That's it. So um, <laughs> exactly that. And this guy was really out. He invested in his relationship. He'd done a lot. He found the house. He, you know, put her, all that stuff. They were co-located um, on the same base. And this had happened. Came in the next day. He was angry. I'm trying to brief this guy going, right, we're going to go flying. This is what we're going to do. We're going to, I used to have to assess all these guys. And this was one of the few guys on the squadron that could also assess me in some of my flying as well. That's why he was quite senior. And I said, right, let's get an assessment trip done for you. Then we'll go up. You need this trip anyway. I want you to show me this teach, which would be part low level, general handling, a bit of navigation, a bit of instrument flying. Last about an hour, 20 minutes. Let's go and get this done. Uh, he was, he was still raging. So I went out, signed the off sheets. And I still remember signing for the airplane being, we have an ops desk where someone reads a piece of paper out. Have you got your G pants on, your helmet? Have you booked the jet out? Have you booked your low level? You yes, 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 yes. And this guy next to me is still talking about this stuff like this. I'm hitting him going, you shut up else the boss is going to find out. What's the matter with you? You know what I'm saying? He's like, but Tim, how did she do this to me? I'm like, yeah, shut up, dude. What's up? I'm trying to smuggle you into an airplane. Anyway, <laughs> the whole way out there, we're walking across the apron to the jet. And he is, I mean, I knew the guy. Fair play to the boy. He'd been massively stitched up. And, uh, He's just raging like he's this ball of anger. And he gets even the ground crew there is going, Jesus, you know, this guy next to the jet is going, what the hell? And this guy's just going, can you believe this? He gets up to the jet. See, I knew how professional this dude was, right? Because they're all the same. Pilots are all the same. He gets up to the jet. As soon as his foot goes on the, on the ladder, you should be ladders up to the jets. You climb up these ladders into the cockpit. He touches it. And that's him. He's done. He stopped talking. He gets in the jet, he starts all jet up and everything. I'm in the back, helmets on, engines come up. He does all the calls, goes out there, he does the low level, the instrument flying, general handling, navigation, does the bit about, you know, all the stuff, transits, instrument flying back in here. 
No, it doesn't say one thing, calm as anything. The most professional dude ever. You wouldn't have ever thought anything else was going on in his life. Lands the jet, taxis it back in, opens the canopy helmets off, all the intercom off, all the jet off, batteries off, gens off, everything else. Gets out, down the ladder. As soon as his foot touches the floor, I'm not even joking, he is raging again. You wouldn't believe that. He's like, another thing she's done. Now, the thing about it is, this is why I said the, the boss to let him fly. They compartment, we can compartmentalize stuff. Now, we just say, and there's an airline guy down here who just dropped a comment in there as well. He knows what I'm talking about. You can have the worst background. When you're flying, it's like, bang, put it on a shelf. I'm going to put that on a shelf for misery later or for attention later. I'll deal with that later. I'll put it on a shelf for sympathy later, we used to call, because you're never going to go back there. Put it in your sympathy box. And this guy did that. He compartmentalized his failing marriage, went fluid, he's an utmost professional. I went back to the boss that day and I said, I've flown with this dude this morning. He's fine. And the boss was really angry at me, but of course... He was fine then. The boss said, right, fine. Well, he can fly then. And I think that guy, about five years later, reached back to me and said that's what stopped him, you know, hanging himself or whatever. He was that deep, that dark, Rich, that he was like, he was going to, you know, throw himself off a beam somewhere. Mm. And that flight, just someone having confidence in him was enough for him to uh, to not do that and rebuild his life, you know? That's an incredible story. Um, yeah, let's wrap it that's up on that thing. note. Uh, Tim, where can people find you and who should come looking for you and your content? Right. So I run a course called the Spin Recovery Course for men going through transitional times. People look at that as like midlife crisis. You don't have to. You don't have to. Now it's a deep course, lasts 12 weeks. I'm not telling you to do it. It's a high ticket price, like two grand or some shit, right? So don't do that. I do work with clients like yourself, Rich, but I'm more into the um, the accountability aspects as opposed to relationship stuff like that. You know what I mean? That's, that's, you're, you're very good. I'm looking at you. are very good at that stuff. I'm going to leave that stuff for you. So um, if people are wanting to be accountable, especially if you guys getting back in shape, anything like that, those are the guys that want to come. But more so, if you want to come and I run a virtual flight school. I, I was the most senior instructor in the Royal Air Force for about a decade. I've taken that now and I've built a flight school you know, on, a, on a flight sim called Digital Combat Sim. Mm. And I teach the syllabi that we trained on these aircraft. It lasts about six months. It's subscription-based. It's not very much, like $50 or something a month. And if you want to come and fly and you do fly flight sims, then come onto fastshipperformance.com. Scroll down. You'll see something called Shadowlands, where you can learn out of the spotlight. See what I did there. And then you can put your headset on. I'll teach you everything you need to know to, to fly these jets. We train F5, F18, and we've just introduced Harrier and F16 at the moment as well. It's a chill place. It's about mindfulness. You need to get yourself involved, Rich. Then you can go and fly your MiG-29 in Russia. Awesome. I'll take a look at it. Yeah, do that. <laughs> Guys, have a look at uh, Tim's stuff. And he just hosted me for an interview on his channel if you want to go watch that as well. But uh, it's been a slice, Tim. I appreciate you uh, carving out some time. And uh sharing some of the war stories and experiences. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. No worries. Had a great time. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll Thanks see you guys it. next time.